0: You're listening You're listening You're listening You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more If you want to learn about the music industry And you don't know where to go Tune into to WP88.7 Brave New Radio We got managers, producers, record labels concert promoters galore You never know Wednesday at 8 p.m. Lord, please Don't break my heart Cause it can get hard I'm praying like Lord, please I run from the dark, no gas in this car to take me away oh, oh, fighting all these demons, let me go Soon as I escape, I feel alone Last year got me on the edge, I'm so, I'm so over red I just need to break it down and flip it You go music biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. Yes. The Marconi award winning Brave New Radio. Did you hear the
1: at the end?
0: Yes, they just won a Marconi award yesterday. I see that. Yes, so well, uh, we have great. Marconi, Professor Dr. Esteban Marconi on a Marconi award winning radio station. Yes, we have some things that to talk about real quick before we talk about the show. Make sure you're right. to do all of these episodes, all these podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google, elsewhere. So we should give thanks at the same time, should we not? Yes, we should. We want to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Wink at White Hat Management with artists like Zach Brown, Kiss St. Vincent, Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And our thanks go to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group, F O U R. Christine's self-professionals and unprofessionals all over the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement when somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your personal financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at forefront.com. And leave the last oi off for savings, which you need to do. Managing Your Band, 7th Edition, is out. And actually, we're going to talk about that. Selling, selling like hotcakes. It is like a griddle cake. It is a Johnny cake. It is a flapjack. But it is selling. Yes. Buy the book and get a free certificate to IHOP. It's doing that well. So Managing Your Band, 7th Edition, is out. Go back to a podcast. We were interviewed by Steve Corbin of Wanna Electra, Atlantic I and mean, we not specifics in that, but there are other things that I thought we should get into. So this episode is just going to be Marconi and Philp talking more about managing your band, a little bit about the book, but about things going on in the business right now anyway. So one thing I want to get into, and I, I don't know if we've touched upon this in this, the four going on five years or, or unless it's five going on six years of this show, but right. you were signed You were a signed artist back in your heyday as a musician, Um, and you had a a manager, then you didn't have a manager. Can you talk about um, the 1970s being signed, what your manager did, what your manager didn't do, how the band reacted to the management, and what the ultimate outcome was? Because this is, I think, interesting. I don't know if it relates to 2022, but let's get into it.
1: Okay, Um, you know, like animals, when they get extremely hungry, they start to eat themselves, go within and eat. Well, we were uh, blessed with being uh, actually, actually recognized by John Hammond, who was the famous empresario that actually was Benny Goodman's brother-in-law, but also discovered Benny and brought Miles Davis to the label and uh, Bob Dylan to the label, Bruce Springsteen to the label after us. And um, we had number of bites. There was almost a bidding war going on. We were a band that was actually a combination of rhythm and blues and, and pop and some tinges of country. And I believe when I recollect on the whole subject, I believe that was one of the downfalls because we never really had a identifiable uh, sort of... You know, logo or identifiable sound, uh, although people knew, obviously, who we were. So we were in a bidding war, and we were actually became a band, as I've told students many, many times, because we got a job at Lake George in the number one club in Lake George when it was filled with hippies. And that club had us playing six sets a night, six nights a week, with the Sunday matinee.
0: So it's like the Beatles in Hamburg. Yes, So they,
1: and, uh, actually that's when you become a band. I mean, you can be a bunch of musicians, you can be, but when you would really call yourself a unit where you know when somebody's gonna sneeze and so on, you become a band. So we did that for two years. And on the second year of doing that and solidifying the band, somehow our manager who was actually just a friend of ours who was getting his PhD, in Syracuse, where we were living, he uh, actually started to um, actually had a roommate by the name of Ron Rainey, who went on to be an agent in um, LA for years. But Ron Rainey was at ICM at the time. It was called IFA at the time, but it's now ICM. And he had them, he had the idea of having some guys come up on a weekend and see the band. So we had that little um, parade come up and we had a uh, gentleman by the name of Carrie Lippman who was the manager of a band called The Electric Flag if anybody knows that band from um, horn bands. And that was probably uh, one of the most legitimate bands ever prior to uh, um, BS&T and prior to Chicago. So he came up and got high with us and so on, and, uh, and he loved us. So he turned, us, he turned uh, an agent onto us, and there was a little bit of a bidding war, but we were actually very chummy then with IFA even before we were signed, this was in the summer. And he got, um, they got somehow Columbia Records got interested in us, and they wanted us to do a demo. So we went, gave up our gig for a week, and we went down and did a demo in uh, 57, 52nd Street, the uh, the old uh, Black Rock building for CBS, and we played at a club called the Electric Circus in on uh, St. Mark's Place, in, the, in that summer. That's the week we played there, and everybody came to see us. I mean, from Hollywood people to agents to record companies and, and so on. But we believed for some reason that we thought Columbia records had the sort of a a little bit of a cache. We wanted to be with them. So we let, let Atlantic go. We let other uh, companies go and we signed with uh, Columbia records. And when we signed with Columbia records, We still were waiting, actually, in the fall, we were waiting for studio time, because they put us with a producer that was on staff, who was going to Capitol the next day, actually. And he was going also through his year of cocaine, so he was useless to us. And we really needed an outside voice, because we had this identity problem. And he just loved the band. It didn't matter what we were playing. He, he loved it. So he wasn't really any help for what I consider being one of, the, one of the issues in the band. So either Simon or Garfunkel got sick in December. And they gave up two weeks of studio time.
0: What year and is this, by the way? Where, where are we, 71?
1: 69. 69,
0: okay.
1: Yeah. And they gave up. Two weeks of studio time so we took it and um, it was 7 to 7, 7 at night to 7 in the morning and we go in with the, with the um, producer. He got sort of tired by 11 o'clock or so and he had his dog with him and he had his new wife with him and so we would excuse him at 11 o'clock at night and then we'd get our work done without a producer. We would produce ourselves till 7 o'clock in the morning and that's uh, the way it went, and our manager just sort of went along with it, and um, he was making deals that were sort of ridiculous. One deal I remember is that we didn't have an attorney, so when we signed the record contract, and we were all, more, most of us were graduates, college graduates and so on, we signed the record contract, and we used the agency's attor- attorney. So that means the agency got 10% of our royalties. Of course, it was the agency's attorney that signed us. Stupid things like that, that I can tell you went on.
0: So the agency got a royalty from your records right. and the agency got a a, royal, uh, a commission for booking your yeah. tickets.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And, you're, and nobody recognized, because you used the wrong attorney.
1: Well, he did well for himself. I mean, you know, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Grubman, of course. So we did that and we would uh, continue having these meetings and these managers came up. I remember uh, Stanley Stanowski came up who owned the bottom line with his, uh, what was the other guy that owned the bottom line? I can't remember his name. But anyway, and they wanted to manage us. Um, Ryan Rainey himself wanted to leave agency managers. So we had a lot of opportunities. Carrie Littman, who I started the uh, discussion with, was very high on us and he gave us a contract. Uh, and he gave us a contract that was on this side, totally for Carrie. Rightly so. We didn't realize that. But we then read the contract and said, and oh, this guy got high with us every week. What the hell is he trying to do? 10%, 10% this, that, that. And we should have negotiated with our attorney to hear. But we didn't go to get the middle because we were green. So we said, screw him. And that was it. You know, he actually got us the gig to be the first band at the Roxy. Um, in L.A.? Yeah, the Roxy in L.A. We were open for it. But we didn't have the money to fly out there. So we couldn't do it. So um, we said to hell with him. And we kept with our manager. And things kept getting worse and worse for us. We kept opening up from everybody from Hendrix to Janis Joplin to, uh, I can't even remember, people uh, bring bring it to my attention, the birds and so on. So we were doing well, we were playing well and Columbia Records, the end of that year, decided that they were gonna bring only supergroups to the Columbia Record Convention, to play in front of all the reps. And we were, we were, uh, Columbia picked us as one of the supergroups. We were there with, um, I think, uh, Maharishnu New Orchestra, Janice, um, Miles, so on. I mean, you know, real heavy things. And uh, Clive at that time became the president. Uh, so we got our shot from Columbia. I'll never say we didn't. We got our shot and Clive put his arms around me, us actually, and said, put out a single, I'm gonna make you all millionaires. And that that was, you know, I asked him about that subsequently. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so we were hot. So we went into the studio in San Francisco. We were playing, I think we were playing the Fillmore West. Uh, yes, we played the Fillmore East on uh, they uh, Graham had one night a week, you could audition to see if you're going to play the Fillmore West.
0: That's Bill Graham,
1: the promoter. Yeah. Right. So, right, so It was his his house. So we played and of course we got accepted because we were a great live band to play Fillmore West. So we were out there in Fillmore West and we were in the studio doing a single and we didn't have a producer. And a gentleman by the name of Roy Siegel, who's a wonderful engineer, an older guy, but he knew his stuff, he was sort of producing us too. And we go in, uh, Santana was in that same studio at night. We were there during the day, Santana was at night. And um, Blood Sweat and Tears was in the studio next to us uh, during the day as well. So you, you start to elbow with all these, you know, we were doing our, album in New York City and Chicago was one floor down. So we kept going up and down. And that's just just the way it is when you get to that point. So we go into the studio on that day and uh, Roy says, I'm not allowed to record you. Came down from Clive Davis. No one without a producer is allowed to record for, for Columbia. So of course we took it personally. Oh, he's doing that just for us. He hates us, but we want out. We want out of everything and manager sucks and so on. So we had our own little meeting. We fired the manager. We left Epic Records and we decided that we were going to do the Beatles thing, that we was going to manage ourselves.
0: They lets just, you it, out of your contract that easily?
1: I think the uh, ink actually crossed us putting in that we wanted out and them saying you could have out. Because uh-huh. I think we sold only about 30, 40,000 copies. Of the first record? Yeah, and at that time that was nothing. Um, but the single did come out the year later, right before this ended. And they didn't bring us to the Columbia Record Convention. That second year, they brought the single up. They played the single for the reps. So I, I can't really knock you know, Columbia Records for not giving us a shot. Uh, I believe that they actually did. So we were so frustrated. And as I said, you start eating within, we fired our manager and we started to look for managers. And that's when Stanley Stanowski came up and all these people came up to manage us, uh, mostly from New York City. And they were all giving us contracts that they should have given us, which were one-sided contracts. So we said the hell with him, and we got so scared, we ran back to our old manager. Hmm. We said, oh, no, we never wanted to, you know, because he was honest. There was no question. He didn't know anything, but he was honest. So um, we did that until we couldn't take it with him anymore. I mean, uh, I can tell you one time since you're your manager, we were booked in a Holiday Inn in the Midwest somewhere that wasn't built yet. And we saw the the hole in the ground with the sign, so we you know we knew we had to improvise and do something, but we called him, and his answer to us I'll never forget it was but you have reservations. That was his answer.
0: Uh, so that's anyway. great. That by the way that would have been perfect in Spinal Tap, going yeah. to a gig for a building that hasn't been built yet.
1: You know. Right. Exactly. Sure.
0: That's hysterical. That's great.
1: So we um, we started managing ourselves and we got, uh, we signed with APA agency. I think we were ready to sign with, um, what's the one? Uh, MCA,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, Cemetery, Musical Cemetery. Music, of Music Cemetery of America. Yeah, we were ready to sign with them, but we never, I don't think we ever did actually. And then we were playing uh, someplace around four years later and the bass player who was already married uh, started seeing this waitress. I think we were in Lauderdale or someplace. So we get back from Lauderdale and he announces that he's going back to Lauderdale to be with her and he's leaving the band. And interesting of course when he got back to lauderdale what do you think happened
0: i'm sure it blasted still together now and
1: yes she was already love. with another guy yeah yeah we ran back to his wife who's still very sweet i, I talked to her very very often and he died suddenly and um, became a big ad man uh and died in uh, when he was only 46 47 years old uh shot so we put another band together in Syracuse nine piece band with more people and more guitars and and so on and it was just chaos i mean it was total chaos and that lasted maybe five months six months mm-hmm. and then the band broke up because um we had the opportunity to go live on butch trucks farm in Macon, georgia and uh start another band which i didn't go and the and the guitar player didn't go and the bass player didn't go. So only three guys went. And they had a band called Tall Dogs. It was a Southern band for a while. And then the, that actually petered out except there was a bright light because somehow uh, Joe English, the drummer of our band who should have been the lead singer and come from behind the band because he had an incredible voice. But we had too many egos in the band too even make that happen, um, he uh, got discovered by um, Paul McCartney and did the Wings Over America tour and then went on to be a Christian artist uh, who you can Google today, still has a great voice, great voice.
0: Yeah, that great, the great version of Maybe I'm Amazed by Paul McCartney, the live version, not the studio in the live version, that's Joe English, you were a drummer. Oh, really?
1: I'd never he heard drums
0: that. On that. That was from Wings Over America, yeah. Pulled cool that yeah. Yeah, the 1976 tour of America,
1: yeah. Well, he did, for us, he came over in front of the drums and he did a, um, we did a cover of uh, Mercedes-Benz. That uh, Yeah, that Janice did.
0: Mm-hmm. But we
1: put, we put a band to it. But he sang the whole first chorus alone. And just killed. I mean, just literally killed.
0: Right. But then the band, so it's interesting. So to, to unpack some of this stuff, you were a band that had a lot of promise and you had everything going for you. But, um, I've had this in, in, as a manager, um, managing a band. Um, I just manage solo artists now, which is so much easier than managing a band because it's hard enough with a single artist who can sometimes be, they can be their own worst enemy sometimes with, with creatives, you know? Um, but with the band, you mentioned all the egos, even if you had, the manager, the, ma- the best manager of, let's say Shep Gordon was your manager at mm-hmm. that, you know, who was coming up with Alice Cooper and he was really becoming quite the manager at that time. Right. Um, who knows if he would have even been able to keep you together with all the different things going on. You know, it sounded like you guys just were had some chip on your shoulder and would have been it, it was almost destined not to work anyway.
1: Well, there were no fights or anything. Mm-hmm. Just I think there was a. um there was a dichotomy in the music one was real r and almost more on the um, Stax record side. And the other one had more of a, like the band, more of a East Coast, um, you know, mountain hills type thing. And that was the two main writers were Gene, Gene McCormick, who was our African-American uh, keyboard player and sax player who was out of um, Daytona Beach. And um, Mark Hoffman, who was out of Syracuse, who loved um, country music as well. But uh, we started writing individual, you know, they'd come in with a song and then we'd all arrange it. And uh, that went on one, two, three, four, five, until you do so many that you don't have to do any covers anymore, unless you want to do covers. And of course, some of the covers that you, you do are your own, so they're they're great. Um, so I don't think I don't know if really that's an honest statement that they couldn't have held us together. I think more importantly was the producer end. That I think if we had a good outside producer, he would have made things happen, or she would have made things happen, and we would have had a more uh,
0: more concise sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Go ahead. no, no. So, yeah, it, it just sounds like um, a band can have a leader. But but in your case, you, you probably needed an outside leader, but you weren't the one outside leader you had was somebody who wasn't educated enough and was spending his year on cocaine. So was not educating himself. So that didn't help you. And then everybody from the outside who offered their services for commission. Um, You guys had, that's where you had a chip on your shoulder and and you didn't have the education, I guess, to be able to understand that if you're offered a contract, you don't sign the first contract that's given to you, you negotiate that. And of course, if I give you a contract, it's all in my favor and- (laughs) Uh, Just like any record contract, any contract, it's in favor of the person giving you the contract and you need to negotiate to make it more fair and you need to read it and understand it. And uh, it seems like rather than go through that, you just felt the man want, you know, it it almost sounds like almost the way the culture was back then, maybe, you know, not that you Mm were, but you were, it was like, this is from the man and I don't want to listen to it and I'm I'm counterculture and forget it.
1: Yeah, 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 it could be. It could be. I don't recollect.
0: So, so you would say though, um, bringing it to twenty, you know, to, to current day, the for bands, what's the lesson for for artists, for for managers from what you went through? Because because it, it's not like oh that happened in nineteen sixty nine to seventy four. Who cares, you know? Because it's all that stuff still applies today, hundred percent. So, what do you think
1: it, it is? It still applies one hundred percent, and I think it's. Um, I think, what you, when you're the, I think what you need is what, when you're a leader of anything, and I learned this when I was chair of the department, uh, to take a step back, to take a view from the balcony and see what's really going on, what's the perceived need and what is really needed, and are they the same thing? And I think that's what uh, sort of happened with us definitely in the producer end, because we, nobody took a step back uh, I was called in to remix the uh, record which I did for seven nights and commuting back and forth to jobs and so on but the uh, and and I didn't know what I was doing but the engineer was was holding me back a little more than I wanted to be in other words I wanted to be more exaggerations than he was giving me um, but that's one. The second thing I think is really having a manager that you totally trust, that you can rely on to know much more than you know. And we got to the point with our manager that we knew more than he did. So that it was not, you know, it was sort of back uh, backwards, as backwards. And I think that's today still very, very important that you have to have someone who's leading, driving the bus,
0: who knows where they're going. Yeah. And I think not it. And to counter that, you know, not every manager knows everything, but they should be willing to learn or to find out and represent their artists the best they can. Ooh, you know? Yeah, I was listening to an interview with the manager of X ambassadors mm-hmm. uh, been mentioned the other day. I can't remember his name, but, uh, uh, and we've actually had their agent David Galea, who's with UTA, on our show. But mm-hmm. the manager of Evex of, of Ambassadors said, um, "I don't know everything. I still don't know everything. There's too much to know. And if you ask me something, if a guy in the band says I want to do this, I'll, if I don't know the answer, I'll say, say, sit on that. I'll, I'll find out. I'm going to ask some people, and I'll get back. You know, I'll get back to you with an opinion. But I need to get some information more. You know, more information." then I can give you some sort of educated answer. And I think that's that's a lot of it. I think when you talk about egos, there's also, it also sounded like, just the way you tell the story, these managers were going to you as if it was, um, uh, you know, as if they were almost going out of their way to help you, you know? Not, not like we're here to help you. You will be our client. Almost like, I'm the manager. I'm going to be your boss. I'm going to make, I'm your savior. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to, um, I was having a discussion with one of the RSI managers the other day, and I was saying, you are the boss. You know, I'm old mm-hmm. you. I know all these things, but you are the talent. You are the boss. You're the one who knows where you're going to go with your life, and I'm just here to help you get there, you know. Yeah. But um, I think that can get in the way too sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> definitely.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, it probably, I mean, every one of them had some pedigree, so they probably had you know, more pedigree than we had, but of course st- we're still up there in little Syracuse, New York. So you w- even when you went up there, you know, either when you went in snow or you went in whatever, it's just a small town, you know? So yeah, you could be right. But I think uh, still today, that's why we wrote this book, of course, is because management is still one of the, le- one of the uh, weakest links. And one of the most, if not the most important, um, relationship for an artist. Um, in fact, I'm reading Steve Van Zandt's book, and he mentioned that right away. Uh, that he still considers management to be the weakest link and the most important
0: aspect yeah. in the business. Yeah, that can make sense on um, on all cases. If you have a manager who's um, who gets in the way of themselves, if you have an artist who trusts too much in the manager, I think. In every case, whether it's the artist or the manager, they all need to constantly be, be learning and trying new things and understanding we don't know everything and getting more experience and understanding that. And I think one, one more step back is your problem was you guys decided to manage yourselves. Um, and at that point, you needed a manager. If we look at the independent artist world, most independent artists don't yet need a manager because there's not enough going on. They want a manager because they think a manager can do things that they're not yet ready for. And there might not right. be enough for a manager to even do at right. that point. Versus you guys had, if you had had a manager, it could have saved you and gotten you new yeah. steps versus most independent artists might never get to the step where they actually need a manager because there's right. a lot of self. You have to do a lot of this stuff on your own and get to a certain point to make it worth it. Because the manager is going to work for free for you for years anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually they get a commission. So they they in general, unless the manager just completely loves every sound that comes out of your instrument and just can't not work with you. Um, they're they're gonna want you to, you know, m- you know, make forge a path as well yeah. so that yeah. there's something to work with there, you know.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point that we were not at the point. Where we needed a manager to start booking and do the, all of that. I mean, we needed a manager to take us to the next level, which was superstar. We weren't, you know, that's what we were aiming at. And we were at a level where we were certainly a regional star, uh, but we had worked nationally, uh, all all across the uh, all across the, the country so yeah that's a very good point i never thought of it that way but it it is and maybe that's why we got the um number of um interest the the amount of interest that we got because we were we're already we were signed on a label and and so on and so forth and in those days that's what separated you from the minor leagues was to be on a major label right
0: yeah i mean if you watch um the movie that thing you do taking place in the 60s yeah. you know a band self you watch this ba- it's a movie about a band self-destructing you know right when they're at the poised to go and become superstars and they just self-destruct you know it's fictional yeah. but it's 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 true um right. it's this sort of this man versus man thing there's the the probably the, the music world is littered with people who we just don't know they could have been yeah. whatever and they made a mistake or they whatever it was they didn't work hard enough we've I mean we've had people come in um you know whether it's Julie Greenwald who's the uh, COO of Atlantic Records or other people who say the biggest problem with artists today after we signed them to our deal is they suddenly stop working they think we're going to do everything
1: yeah.
0: And, that, yeah and I think um I was talking to a class the other day the biggest It's a problem, but it's one of those it is what it is statements these days for any new artist. If you want to have a larger footprint and you want to get to the next level, you need to have a social media presence. And that doesn't mean just putting up a post. That means you're not only writing and composing and practicing and playing your music. You are also creating some other form of content to post in social media. Yeah. You need to be on TikTok. You have to be on TikTok, and you have to be on Instagram right now. And then lots of maybe, and, and YouTube, you know, and notice how I've gone from one to definitely two. Oh, actually definitely three and your website, but you have to constantly create content that yeah. is outside of being an artist making songs that are going to go on this other platform, which is called a DSP, digital service provider, which is Spotify, Amazon, Apple, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, it's very, it's almost harder now than back then because you're creating two kinds of content and it's, you have two different sides of the brain creating it. And it's very hard and you have to be very disciplined and you have to do it all the time. And it's mm-hmm. it just as the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. but the I think it's much harder to, now. Yeah, yeah,
1: I, it really is. I, I, one dimensional in those days. Write music and play it, you know, as long as it's original. And today, it's as soon as you get to take the guitar off, that doesn't mean it's over. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't just sit in the living room and get high. You have to now go on the internet and do what you need to
0: do. Yeah. Yeah, you watch... um, I I watched uh, the documentary, uh, A History of the Eagles. And you you watch, you know, when they're not... The show ends and they go back and they have, you know, they called it the... uh, the encore, you know, back at the hotel with right. the women in the, the partying and all that kind of stuff. And um, it's harder to do that now. First of all, everybody has a camera. So you you say you're using the wrong thing. That's it's right. It's somewhere, but on the, but where I was really going was the show's over somebody on your team for the, for the artist, if not the artist him or herself needs to have that phone out and be creating content even while you're on the road. Cause right. it's, it's, nonstop you know yeah until if you're an Ed Sheeran or a John Mayer you can take that six months to a year off because you've built something but it took you years and years and years to build that so you can take that break but for most artists are independent artists and they cannot afford to take six months off because the algorithm everything is so run by algorithms that algorithms can fall asleep on you and you come back to I was getting uh, you know, uh, 300,000 views of everything I did. Now I'm back to getting under a thousand because they quit on me because I quit on it, and it's yeah. it is what it is. That's where it gets, you know, yeah, yeah, very but true. It, it is very true, and um, that's what makes me great. I wanted to bring up, and so one thing I just brought up that is different from today versus back then in your, and I don't want to say in your day. Uh, This this was even 10 years ago, you know, there was the term unsigned artist. Yeah. So um, if you're a musician, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, unsigned artist means I want to get a a label deal. That's the goal. Get a label deal. Now, to me, unsigned artist is almost I I don't want to insult labels, but it's sort of an insult because really you just want to you're an independent artist. And you have the ability, any artist, to forge your own path without a major label. These, you don't necessarily have to get million dollar advances or even $50,000 advances. You know, some, some distributors out there are giving advances. There are some ways to get some money, but Mm -hmm. there are ways to make money now that didn't exist in the past. And um, it's interesting how that sort of, uh, The semantics of unsigned versus independent have changed now. Yeah.
1: Well, I think uh, there was false, uh, it was misunderstood that everybody who was on a record was making millions of dollars and everybody who was on a label was making tons of money from royalties. And that the idea was that you were either going to, you were going to make it in terms of superstar if you get on a label and that There was no middle ground like there is today where you can be an independent artist and be very comfortable and doing what you want to do and not not shining shoes or anything, but actually being very comfortable and doing what you want to do. And that sort of wasn't um, I don't think that was a um, a goal or was it available? I think either you played holiday inns with covers and that's what you did basically weekends or you were superstar or you were you know you're doing your own material and so on and and the record company was taking care of you and you were going all over the world so I, i think it's it's sort of changed now where people are more realistic to understand that you can be a musician and you can be doing your own thing not playing for someone else in a studio or whatever but doing your own thing and being very comfortable as long as you work at it and of course your stuff is
0: of the highest quality yeah. I mean, one thing I guess, you know, we obviously aren't talking about is just writing good music, which is objective anyway. But okay. uh, and, and I think what's different nowadays also is the access people have to music that wasn't there 10 years ago, it was there five years ago. But now it's just you can get anything you ever wanted. Basically, you can listen to and it's there yeah. um, for, for uh, very inexpensive prices uh cost to the consumer so um the other thing i wanted to say is what's different nowadays versus when you were there is there are when we talk about access there's more access to education because the internet which has maybe made it harder for an artist to make it because of that much more work to do Also, the Internet has made it so whether it's the Internet or actually just a university like William Patterson, there there are formal and informal ways to teach yourself and to learn about the business that what didn't exist when you were there.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And I think that um, I always said this. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't be talking to you. Mm -hmm. I'd be someplace, you know, on the Riviera or whatever. But you learned the hard way of course, by doing it, which is still extremely important. I mean, nothing can substitute that, but at least now we have so many people that are willing to share and so many people that have been through various stages of a career and can offer advice and that plus everything else on the internet um, is really, there's no excuse not knowing something about the business if this is your business just like you're going to be a plumber you know you don't just um <laughs> you, i don't have to go into the whole thing but the idea is the same thing you're not going to be a plumber without knowing what how to be a plumber and the same thing And i always criticize music departments and i still do even though i was in for, for 40 years the idea that you are putting out people that can play their instruments and sing and so on that have no idea how to make money of it outside of teaching lessons or getting an education degree and going into a school. That there's an entire universe of music out there which keeps all of the rest of it going because it is actually professional. And it may have started out with gangsters and so on and clubs and all that, but today it's a very, very, very legitimate and, and uh, high grossing industry. And the music, most musicians not most now, because as you know and I know, so many have programs now, but they uh, were s- just not interested because they were never taught it themselves. So somehow you were able to become a great opera singer by not knowing anything about the music, the business. And that came actually from mentoring because you would be in New York or someplace and you would have a teacher that was an opera singer who took took you under their wing and introduced you to management and so on and so forth. And that's how you learned. Uh, You didn't learn on your own, which is so important today because there's so many schools doing this. And secondly, I think the other thing is we're still producing in actuality, too many oboe players, too many violin players, too many piano players in music schools, just graduating every year that expect to make, uh, make it in the business and not just make it as an art. And uh, that'll never change, I don't think. And I don't think it really should change. You should follow your dream and if you're an artist, and you believe in yourself, then you should follow your, your art as well.
0: Yeah, and I think um, there, is, there are two ways to go when, when it comes to learning about the music business. And I think you can do both. One, which is formal training, of like going to college and going to, there are, as you said, music business programs all around the country. And they've been there for a long time. I told you a long time ago, Um, When I was looking to go to college, we actually went to Syracuse. My dad, I think, had an old catalog. We went to Syracuse to find you specifically, and you'd gone to New Jersey to William Patterson, and we were in New Jersey already. So then we ended up coming back and finding you in Patterson. But even, you know, back then, there were music business programs, and I still run into people, even at William Patterson, where we teach and go, I don't even know. I didn't even know we had something. Um, Right sometimes I, I blame people for not looking, but then there's also the, you don't know what you don't know until you find out that you didn't know it, which is, right. yeah. I'm thinking. but I don't think there's anything wrong with learning in a formal program. And I also don't think there's anything wrong with learning on, you know, on your own. And, but I think a, a, for some people, the best way, this was definitely for me um, learning in a formal program, a music business program and doing stuff on my own. If you can mix the two, that's great. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's just like you mentioned the plumber. I always say the heart surgeon thing. Um, I wouldn't want somebody to come in and give me a quadruple bypass if they never read a book about what the heart is Mm -hmm. like and how the circulation system works and all that. And there are a number of people out there who are in the industry who are very anti-music business school. You know, whether it's Bob Lefsetz, who's bashing it, there's a guy who used to be the manager for sublime, forget him, but he has his own, uh, he has his own program. So he has his own educational program. So he has uh, incentive to bash formal music business programs, but his whole thing is I learned on my own. You don't need that crap yet. He's right. going to teach you, you know, I think you can learn all over the place. I think you could go to like a William Patterson and you could learn from that guy at the same time. Cause I wouldn't bash. Cause he probably has some great stuff everywhere you go you can learn from something, you know? And I think they're just different people learn different ways.
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's important to do what we do. And that means we don't let them get out without having a taste of the business, either through an internship, most likely through internships rather than projects.
0: Or multiple internships.
1: Yes. And we, we require multiple internships. Uh, And I don't know if you can, you know, that's going to be, just like art versus commerce, formal education versus not formal education, it's always gonna be a, a big discussion, if not argument in any, um, in any um, industry. Uh, but I, I think we, both, we were both always on the same page that um, formal education is important and we can do things that you can't do on your own. But you can also do things on your own that we can't do for you in the, in the, in the school.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah finding that mix so i just think those people who uh, are out there just saying i learned on my own you don't need no business school can teach you this i think uh maybe they're speaking out of uh in their own personal insecurity because they didn't go through one of these yeah. programs i'm, I'm not That's sure it. i don't That's know too, yeah. why they need to do that so yeah um, i definitely want to tackle that and then in a music business school, that's where you're gonna get your copy of Managing Your Band, Seventh Edition. wanna bring up uh, radio. Mm-hmm. Radio used to be, and something I read today about radio. I had, uh, I was in radio for a number of years, um, but, but to, to tell me from your perspective, when you were an artist, I would say growing up, you know, when you were an artist, how important was radio to you? Because it was like that for decades.
1: Right. As an artist, we were every uh, city we went into, we tried to get on the station and mo- the station. And most of the times we did. Remember, we were an opening act. We didn't go to San Francisco at the film as the headliner. You know, we were the opening act no matter what city. So we understood the importance of, of radio and making friends. That was the biggest thing. It wasn't so much. You know, so they played the record while you were there, but the idea was to make friends so that the next time you came around, they remembered you as a nice, you were nice guys. And they also would then pitch you and so on. So it's, you know, it's it's certainly changed today because of the other outlets with playlists and so on. But uh, some of the... When you read about the history of the business, some of it really was uh, people were really, really successful because of the Steve Leeds and the Popovich and all of those guys that were uh, record promoters and they knew radio and they believed in right. radio and they loved radio. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And radio was important because it, it was breaking artists and ra- radio up into the nineties, you had regional hits. You had uh, songs breaking out of individual markets, whether it was Cleveland or Detroit or New York, or Boston. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting. And so artists, labels re, uh, relied on radio tremendously.
1: Yeah, well, they Listen all had uh, field reps that, that handled the um, those radio stations. So the best thing is when you went into a city to play a concert that the field rep met you and he took you over to the radio station if he was doing his homework. Uh, and if they didn't meet you, then they were, you know, they were not very good. They weren't doing their job. Uh, so that's very true. But it was, we, we understood the importance of radio. And I think there is still a, a certain um, part of it that's very important.
0: Yes. Um, I think radio today doesn't break artists. I think radio will take a hit and amplify it at that point.
1: Oh, I know my point. My point was that you you met the field guy from Toledo and that was a tertiary market. So you went in there and of course they would play your record. You couldn't get it played in New York City, but they would play it. So you would have that record played in Toledo and then all of a sudden they'd get the uh, sheets for the week and they'd find out that the small station in Milwaukee picked it up. So the record company would go up to Milwaukee and stomp on it. Now you got Toledo and Milwaukee and you start to get what you're talking about as a regional hit. And the last place you'll get a new record played is New York City. I mean, it just, it's just not gonna happen. They're not gonna spend, uh, they're not gonna uh, take the chance of you turning that dial. So these regional hits were very important in those days. Um, And there's a million stories about regional hits and how, you know, people got discovered from them.
0: Well, I I read an article this morning and there was, uh, uh, in a a radio trade publication, and it was written by somebody who's been in radio for 35, 40 years. And uh, he was talking about country radio specifically. And the CMA awards, country music awards were earlier this week. And he watched them and he said, what was interesting that none of the artists thanked radio. There were no. Yeah, I didn't hear thank that. Thank you to this radio station, or right. country music radio. He said right. he thanked radio.
1: And they always used
0: to do that. Yeah, and and um, it's it's important to realize that, and I think a lot of that has to do with so much is built today's. First of all, today's young people. If if you go to a college class, for example, a sample size of twenty or something, I did this yesterday. Um, of the twenty people in the room. Um, I think five of them, and this was about 11 o'clock in the morning, five of them had listened to radio that day. The other 15 had not. Mm -hmm. That's probably what it is. And that's a whole, basically, 75% of a generation is not listening to radio. There's that. Um, So radio has, has an issue with that. The second thing we were talking earlier about, the fact that so many artists are independent, it is so hard to get a song on radio now if you're not signed to a major label. So that doesn't even become part of the equation for an independent artist. Yeah, if yeah. I have some money, yeah. I'm going to spend that money not on an independent radio person to try and get my song on a station that he probably won't have any luck because it's not a major label. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to spend that money and spend it on um, Instagram stories ads or TikTok promoting posts or things like
1: that. Right.
0: So, Radio is is hurting itself in multiple ways. Plus, with the tiny playlists, yet we have access to everything now. As we mentioned, also in Spotify, radio is almost the opposite of the way the music industry has gone. And mm-hmm. people aren't listening. People are listening to everything, and radio is only playing a little bit of right. already out there. And basically, they're taking hits and amplifying them, but they're not making the hits. And so mm-hmm the radio great especially if you're a songwriter because then you're going to get your performance rights organization money but um, that's for the giant hits otherwise yeah. it, you know it's i talked to a guy during the pandemic who's the manager for Death cab for cutie and he i say and it, one of the artists in Death cab for cutie had a um glenn hubbard i think um had a hit uh triple mm-hmm. a radio which is a which is a smaller format and I said, you know, it's getting a lot of play. And he said, you have to understand that of all the spins he's going to get on tri- you know, on the AAA stations in America, we'll call it uh, this week or, or ever on that format. That's how many spins, uh, that's the same audience that Z100 would have given him in one day. Yeah. You know, so there's also, yeah, yeah. this is uh, not going to make a lot of money. So that artist is going to make all the money from live anyway. So again if you're not writing a, a hit for Doja Cat, Ariana Grande, Bruno Mars, all those people, um, you know, you're, again, you're making it through lives. You're making it through streaming. You're making it somewhere else, but not with radio. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we have about two minutes left. Um, is there anything else you think that managing your band 7th edition covers that you feel is important that artists, and the potential readers of the book would find interesting.
1: I think still going back to, um, I believe it's chapter two, which is called care and feeding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I still think that that chapter has a, I'm just double checking now, that that chapter has no chapter one, that that mm-hmm. chapter has, uh, a great deal of the um, philosophical and psychological aspects of taking control of someone else besides yourself and taking care of them, care and feeding. And I think that's um, that's still an important, I think it's just very important. They always say that the manager should be the, psych- the your shrink and so on and so forth. But I think it's important to have the vision of what my artist is doing today, uh, just sitting around the house, what he's gonna to do tonight on stage and what they're going to do in six months, eight months, or or 12 months and how I can facilitate that.
0: Yeah, exactly. When, a lot of times when they say that managing an artist is, is being a psychologist or a mom or a dad or whatever, it's. Mm-hmm. A lot. it's a lot of that, it's really listening. I mean, even, and it's not just being a manager, it happens in other uh, places. We have uh, Dave Kersner, who runs our sound engineering arts program. He's really big in the fact that the people in that program who were going to be engineers or producers, they really need to understand the psychology of an artist, especially in the studio when they're at their most vulnerable mm-hmm. when creating, when they're, they, the studio is either home to them or the scariest place on earth yeah, right. and the person behind the board or, and the board might you know, be a laptop, but the person working that needs to understand who they're dealing with and mm-hmm. dealing with you, the art, you know, with the creative, when you're dealing with a creative, these people are bearing their souls to you mm-hmm. and you need to be sensitive to that mm-hmm. and, and think about, them and not just think about yourself. So I think think there's a lot to that.
1: And also, you know, you can equate it also that um, I'm a trumpet player, you're a drummer, uh, percussionist and so on. And when you stink that day, you can walk away from it. Mm -hmm. Put the the horn on a case or just get out of that room. I stink today. But a singer or someone that's really doing it from the heart can never let that go. So they have more psychological needs than maybe the drummer does or the, or the trumpet player does. Uh, And I think that's important to understand too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so if, if you go back to managing a band, you're not just managing a band, you're managing three, four, five, six, nine different personalities within that band and you have to know them all and know what they're, where they're coming from. And be sensitive to all of them, you know, right. because you're managing. Sometimes, as as Irving Azoff, when he, he talked about the Eagles, was managing their breakup, you know, for years, so until we <laughs> got back together. But you know, it's interesting. So, so we need to wrap it up. We thought this would be an interesting thing to talk about uh, right. as well, because we've never we've never done a show, just you and I talking about the business and this stuff. So I thought it was good. Right. right. So at the end of every show. We don't say hello, obviously. What do you say? Say goodbye. In English, you say goodbye. Yes. In my native tongue, I say adios. I'm seven medicine. Oh, where do I begin? How dare you take me by the hands? How dare you ruin all my plans? How dare you get under my skin? Give me one good reason I ever let you in. Cause it hurts like.